younger believers. And as has already been commented, I know that not all of us are younger. We've got people from different age groups, but uh, hopefully this message will be something all of us can learn from. You know, I teach still part-time at the Christian school that I taught at last semester, Columbus Christian School. It's been quite the learning experience for me on what teaching is like, how to deal with middle school students, and think some days that I've probably learned more than they have. And I was thinking about it the other day, just a couple of lessons I've learned from teaching middle school. I've learned this, that the perfect seating chart does not exist. It's like a game of Tetris, trying to figure out the perfect seating chart. And just when I think I've got it right, it's the boy and the girl that I put together are in a relationship. And so I've got to move everything around so that they are not sitting by each other anymore. I've learned that at least one student in every class needs a pencil. They didn't bring it with them, and they need to borrow a pencil from someone, and that's going to be a five-minute affair of whose pencil they choose and where they sharpen it and all of those things. I've learned that children don't have access to charge their computers at home. They need to do it in the middle of your class while you're trying to lecture because their Chromebook died. Now, that might not have been an issue for some of you guys when you were in high school, but because of COVID and everything... All of us, okay? <laughs> it's an issue today for those students. I've learned why it takes teachers so long to grade papers. You know, I used to get really upset about how long it would take teachers and professors and uh, different classes I've taken to get papers back to you. And when I became a teacher, I realized that if you've got 22 students in a class, you've got to grade all their papers and assignments that they turn into you. And I've lastly, and maybe most importantly, learned this. I've learned why teachers get summers off in between school years. Because I think if I had to do what they do every day throughout the summer, I would lose my mind. As a young person, I can attend to the fact that we have a lot to learn. You know, when I first came here as a resident, I was a little surprised by the fact that Henry had sent me here and I'd gotten acquainted with the church and I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all these people that I can help teach. And I didn't realize how much that I had to learn even when I was coming here. I had to learn the different customs of the church, as you might call it. I had to learn what bologna gravy was. I had to learn what in the world all the different squirrel sculptures were in the church. And I was assured that wasn't idol worship or anything, but they were just <laughs> decorations. I had to learn all the different times that you guys met. I had to learn, and I'm still learning, how long it takes to get to church from living 30 minutes away or so. I had to learn about all of you guys as well, and as your pastor, I'm still learning. As I get older, I realize that it's not necessarily about how much I know, but about how much I still have to learn sometimes. I used to think when I was younger, I'm just a little bit of a ways away from knowing everything. And now that I've gotten even just a little bit older, I'm realizing I don't really know anything at all, do I? I'm still learning. And young people still need to learn, don't they? We still need to be taught. We still need to understand. Older people need to learn as well. But sometimes we can get caught up in how much we know that we fail to pay attention. We fail to learn. We fail to grasp. We think we have arrived. Paul's writing to a young person. He's writing to Titus, who's building 
the church. Kathy Perry showed me her duck the other day. It was a construction duck. She said it was Titus and he's building the church. And I thought that was very appropriate. Paul's teaching him, this is how you build a healthy church. You want to know what a healthy church is made up of? It has good elders who are qualified men who teach the word faithfully. It doesn't have false teachers. It doesn't tolerate false teaching, but it stands against it. It has older men who are sober-minded and dignified. It has older women who teach the younger women what is good. But as we examine our text this morning, we see some lessons for younger believers. But don't be fooled. If you're older and you're here today, there's still some things that you can learn as well. And you can not only learn from these lessons for young believers You can learn how to teach and disciple younger believers in our church, in your families, and in the world around you as well. Because I think that Paul wants us to understand this as we look at this passage, that God wants younger believers to learn sound doctrine. God wants younger believers to learn sound doctrine, and older believers, he wants you to help teach us. He wants you to help disciple us as well. We talked last week about the older believers and the sound doctrine that they were to learn. We know that it's not just believing something, but it's taking that belief and putting it into practice. It's taking that belief and doing something with it. And so younger believers here today, my prayer is not to discourage you, but it's to encourage you with the lessons that Paul gives to us Older believers, my prayer is that you would see how you can instruct younger believers in these things and how you can be instructed as well as we look at these different lessons that Paul has for us. First, lessons for younger women. Lessons for younger women. Look at verse, the end of verse 3. In his instructions to older women, he says this. He says, they are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. We said last week that is one big compound word that means a teacher of good. What are they to teach? We'll look at the rest. Look at verse four. It says, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Younger woman, the first lesson that Paul has for you is to love your families. It's to love your families. He's instructing the older women, teach the younger women how to love their husbands well. Now, we know that if you're married, you love your spouse. I don't think Paul's trying to question that. But he's telling them, teach them how to take care of their husbands well, how to love them correctly. Be a good example of this. I think the reason why Paul tells Titus this is that True love, sacrificial love, does not come naturally, does it? We are very selfish people. And in our own selves, we seek after us. And so Paul's telling Titus, and Titus is to tell the older women, you need to teach the younger women how to love their husbands well. You need to teach them how to love their children well. We read in Sunday school in Genesis 3 that 
God told Eve her desire would be contrary to her husband. In our sin natures, we do not love each other naturally very well. And so the lesson Paul has for younger women is to love your families well. Now, the natural argument that comes from this is that mothers do love their children. Wives do love their husbands in ways I'm sure that I can't understand. And so what is Paul trying to say? Well, it's that a lot of wives and a lot of mothers may love their children, but they may not know how to love them well yet. Because of sin, some mothers resent their husbands and neglect their children. Because of sin, some wives control their husbands and indulge their children. Because of sin, unfortunately, some wives leave their husbands and some mothers abandon their children. This happens all the time in our world today. Older women, you need to teach the younger women how to love their families well. In whatever context of life they're in, whether they're married, whether they're single, Who's going to teach them how to do these things? It's you. And how do you do this? It's by having a good marriage yourself. It's by loving your family well. It's by teaching them what is good, being a good example for them. No matter what stage of life you're in, passing down the wisdom and knowledge that God has given you to the next generation. Love your families well. Younger women, find older women who can teach you these things. You can teach you how to love your families. He not only talks about loving your husbands and children, but he also later in verse 5 talks about working at home and being submissive to their own husbands. As you can imagine, this is a very controversial text in our world today. I highly doubt people in mainstream culture would read this text and think this is what a woman should look like. And I don't think Paul is saying that women just have to work in the home, that they can't have a job outside of the home. My mother worked outside of the home my whole growing up, and I turned out, I think, pretty well. You can tell me otherwise, all right? So what do I think Paul is talking about? Well, I think he's saying that women's, the wife's, the mother's responsibility is to her family. It is to be at home working with her children. It doesn't mean she can't have an outside job. It doesn't mean she can't work full time. But it means using wisdom to decide how best God wants you to do that in your family. For some families, it's easier. For other families, it's harder. I know some families who the wife has worked full time and the kids have turned out great and she's been able to faithfully mother her children and other families where it's not been quite as easy but it's telling us paul is telling us here that the woman's responsibility is to their families that doesn't mean that men don't have a responsibility to their families it doesn't mean that husbands don't have a responsibility to take care of their families they do they have a responsibility to lead in the home But as all of us know, when we think about what makes the home, what sets the culture of the home, we know it's the mom. I can tell you many stories from my own life where my mom was away on a trip and away on some kind of business. 
And I could slowly start seeing the house fall into chaos as she was gone. And then eventually she would come back and it felt like everything was back in order. And she'd wonder, what did you guys do to the house? Paul is telling women here, he's telling the young women, the older woman, to teach this to the young women, to work at home, to care for their family as well, and then to be submissive to their own husbands. Wives aren't the only one that have to submit to authority. We all do at different times. And I think that's important for us to understand. I have to submit to authority and governments at work, even within MCE, all of these different authorities that I have in my life. Husbands have to submit to authority. Wives are to submit to their husbands. There's no position you can have on earth where you're not submitting in some way to someone's authority. And we all know that we all submit to the authority of God. Husbands aren't to use their authority to lord over their wife or to be cruel in some way, but they are to be faithful leaders in their home, to love their wives well. Paul is not saying that wives should submit to evil husbands in a way that would cause them to sin, but he is telling them to be faithful to who the person that God has for them. Now, the question that we come to is this. What about if you're not married? What about if you don't have a husband? What about if you don't have a wife? How does this apply to you? Well, God tells you to faithfully serve in whatever context of life you have. God tells you to faithfully love your family, whatever that might look like. I know that looks different for all of us, doesn't it? Young women, God tells you to live in sound doctrine. There's instructions here for married women, but there's also instructions for just all young women in general. Look with me at the rest of verse 5. It says to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That word self-control, we've seen time and time again come up in the pastoral epistles. It means to be self-disciplined in your mind, to be sober-minded, to have control over your thoughts and your emotions. Paul's instructed each of the age groups in how to do this. And he's saying all young women in general need to be self-controlled. No matter what context of life you are in, God tells you to live in sound doctrine and to be self-controlled. This discipline of mind, this having your mind sober and clear, it leads to a disciplined life, to having your life in order, to making sure things are taken care of. He also says, on top of being self-controlled, he also says that they should be pure, which means to be modest or chaste. To reflect God's holiness and purity in your own life. The culture on Crete was wicked. It was full of partying. It was full of rebellion. It was full of women who did not practice this. Women who wanted to seduce men. Women who did not have a good reputation in the community. And Titus is ministering to people like this. And so he'd need the older women's help to teach the younger women how to be 
self-control, to teach the younger woman how to be pure. Younger women, are you loving your families well? Whatever context of life God has you in, whether you're married, whether you're single, are you loving your families well? Are you submitting to authority in your life? Older women, are you teaching the younger women how to do this well? You might tell yourself, you might tell me, I don't know if I have anything to offer. We have life experience that you can share with the younger women in our church and in your families around you. Are you modeling what it is to be a good wife, to be a good woman of God to those who are watching you? Sometimes we don't think enough about the people who watch us, about the people who copy us at different times. As a person who's worked with children, I've been very surprised at the little things I say, the little quotes I'll make in class or something that kids pick up on. If you're not insecure about yourself, you should go work with kids because they'll tell you all the little idiosyncrasies that you have. Older women, are you being faithful to model what it means to be a good woman of God? To those who are watching you, who you may not even know are watching you. So much more is caught sometimes rather than taught, as some people would say. Younger women are to grow in these things. They are to learn from older women, find older women who they can learn from in their own lives. How to be self-controlled, how to be pure, how to love their families well. In church family, when we see younger women in our church doing this, just as we do with the other age groups, we should honor them and respect them because they are a gift to God's church. Because a younger woman who practices these things well stands in complete contrast to the culture around them. So honor them, respect them, help them, be a good example to them. This is a younger woman who lives in sound doctrine. If we think about just women in general and how they are to act, I think about Proverbs 31. It tells us about the excellent wife and how she behaves, how she orders her life, how it talks about her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband talks about her to the elders in the gates. He tells his wife, many have done excellently, but you have excelled them all. Women in our church family, just all of you in general, I pray that that is your desire, that no matter what context of life you are in, that you would have the reputation for people around you to say that you are an excellent woman of God. Young men, God does not leave us out of the picture either. There are instructions that Paul gives to young men in verse 6. He says, likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. And that's it. Well, there's a little bit more to that than I think just being self-controlled. I don't think that he's letting the young men off the hook necessarily. We have to understand what Paul is saying here. First of all, when he says, likewise, He's not saying that the younger men have to do everything the other age groups have done. But he's saying rather that in each age group, they have something that they are meant to do as well. The older men have instructions given to them. The older women have instructions for them. Same as the younger women. And now we get to the younger men. 
And while I don't think this is the only instruction, and I'll explain that in a moment, I do think that this is a little bit more significant than we might think it is. He uses a different verb here. Instead of teach, instead of speak, he says to urge. It means to exhort or encourage strongly the way that Paul is using it. He says, urge the young men to be self-controlled. What does that say about younger men that Paul is telling them that? Now, everyone has been told to be self-controlled, but instead of teaching them, Paul says you need to urge them. It tells us that young men are not normally very self-controlled. If you look in verse 7, my translation does not, I believe, do an accurate job of this as maybe other translations might. But in verse 7 it says, in all respects, if you look at that in Greek, That phrase actually better goes with verse 6. What I think Paul is really saying is, Titus, teach the young men how to be self-controlled in all things, in all areas of their life. Teach them how to be self-controlled. There's this one exhortation given here, and I think some more later that we'll look at. But it's a rather weighty one, isn't it? That in their whole life they should... Order it well, as we've talked about. The same description given to all the age groups of having a sound mind, living a life of self-discipline, ordering your life well. He's really saying, Titus, come alongside the young men and show them how to be godly. Show them how to order their life well. Show them how to love their families well. Show them how to exercise discipline and restraint and who their friends are, in the different things that they seek after, in their relationships with others. He's saying, Titus, show them how to be self-controlled in their jobs, and who they work with, and how they respond to their employers there. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And young men, we should practice self-control in all areas of our life? Do we have a sober mind that leads us to self-discipline in our life? The activity on the island of Crete was not conducive to raising young men who were living rightly. It was so chaotic, it was so harmful that the younger men seemed hopeless. It's getting harder and harder to find young men who want to be godly, who want to use speech that is God-honoring, that want to work jobs that support their families well. We face time and time again a crisis for young men who want to serve the Lord faithfully. In our world today, we see young men who speak vulgarly. They are obsessed with their own impulses and passions. If you look at different studies on Sins like pornography, you see that it's running rampant in all age groups of life, but especially with young men as well. As many as even 20 to 30 percent of them have a serious lifelong addiction to pornographic images. And about 90 percent of young men are exposed before they are 18. Young men, we need to be self-controlled in all areas of our life. And older men, you need to find out who are the younger men that you can disciple. 
Who are the younger men that you can help in these areas? Who are the younger men that you can minister to? The lessons you've learned in life, some of them good, some of them hard. How can you teach them from those things? How are you teaching young men self-control? Are you modeling that in your own life? This is part of having a well-ordered and healthy church. Now, I don't think this is the only command that Paul gives to younger men because he starts addressing Titus in verse 7, and he says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus was a younger man himself, but why was he to be a model or a type, as the word would translate in Greek? Well, it's because he would teach the younger men how to do good works as well. And so we can say younger men need to learn good works. He's saying, Titus, you yourself in your own life need to make sure that you model, that you pattern what good works are, what things are good to do. We've said that the book of Titus is concerned with sound doctrine, what you believe, but really how that belief affects your entire life. And then it's also concerned with good works as well. And those are just doing things that are good for the church, for the community around you. They look different maybe for everyone. We all have things in life that God has called us to do that is good. Paul is telling Titus, Titus, you make sure in your own life you are doing good works for your church, for your community, for the people around you so that the younger men know what to do, so that they know who to follow. The word he uses for example is tupas, which means type or pattern. Younger men would need an example, a pattern to follow, someone to model their life after. I can remember my grandpa. In many ways, he was the one who taught me how to work. He taught me how to mow the lawn. He taught me how to run the weed eater, how to dig up a tree to plant a new one there. He taught me a lot of different life skills on how to do things outside. Now, sometimes he taught me wrongly, and he needed to correct me on that. But in many ways, he would show me, but he often would show me by showing me how to do it himself. As he would show me how to mow, as he would show me how to run the weed eater, as he would show me how to do things outside, he would teach me by doing things himself and then having me follow after him. Paul's telling Titus, you need to teach the young men how to do good works by being an example of good works in your own life as well. Young men, we should strive to do what is good. We should strive to be faithful in the ministries that God has given us. The world around us does not give us examples of good productive young men, we should strive to be different. We should strive to be better than that. We should strive to be an example for others. Older men, teach us what is good. Teach us how to do good works, the ways we should go. Show us how to live godly lives. He then tells Titus, in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. 
teaching, referring to the doctrine that he is explaining to the church. We know that the false teachers were empty talkers. They would talk about things that weren't true or that didn't matter at all. And the things that they were trying to get across to people were commandments of men or were lies, myths. He's saying, Titus, teach them sound doctrine. Teach them what they should believe. Show them integrity and dignity. Integrity having the idea of something that's uncorruptible, something that can't be tarnished. He's saying, Titus, teach them doctrine that won't go away. And young men are to learn from Titus and they are to believe sound doctrine in their own life. They should be instructed in these things. We see that this sound doctrine would lead in verse 8 to sound speech that cannot be condemned. What we believe would lead to words, to sayings that would be healthy and sound as well. The speech of the young men on the island of Crete was not wholesome. They were vulgar. They were profane. They would say things that they ought not to say. And I know just from personal experience, from the different young men that I've encountered through work and different areas of my own life, it's sometimes odd to be the only young guy working that doesn't curse, that doesn't use profane language. Sometimes, just in general, it's odd to be the only worker that doesn't use foul language. It actually stands out to people. And they ask why you don't use that same language that they do. And it's an example for you to tell them that you're a Christian and tell them why you don't use speech that is that way. And this is exactly what Paul had in mind. He said, teach the young men how to speak soundly or healthily. That same word used for sound doctrine. Teach them things to say that are worth saying. That would attract people to the message that they have. He says this sound speech cannot be condemned. He's saying, Titus, teach them to say things that people can't use against them. Make sure that they are above reproach in their Speech. Make sure you, Titus, in your own life are above reproach in the things you say. I am shocked by how many pastors, how many teachers of the Bible you hear stories of, you hear video clips of online and different conversations that they have who are just willing to curse and use vulgarity in their conversations with others. He's saying, Titus, be a good example of what it means to speak soundly so that your opponent can't so that your opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us it doesn't mean they're not going to say anything evil but it means that anything that they're trying to bring against you anything that they're trying to say in condemnation towards you or accuse you of it's not going to be able to stick it's not going to have any merit He's telling them, teach the young men how to live above reproach so that maybe they could be men like we talked about in chapter one that would be qualified to be elders and leaders in the local church. Teach them how to be good young men so that they can become good older men as well. So younger men, we should be 
monitoring our speech, learning sound doctrine so that it can lead to right speech to others, making sure no one can say anything about us that would accuse us of something. Older men, teach us how to do these things. Teach us how to live in this way. Younger men, when we live a life motivated by sound doctrine, we can bless our church. Church family, when you see younger men acting this way in our church and just around you, you should honor them because they are a gift to God's church. They're part of making a healthy local church here, even in our church as well. But there's one more group of people I want to talk about this morning, and they are not identified by their age. The last two verses of chapter 10 are specifically written to bond servants or slaves, as we might call them. Now, none of us in the room are slaves, and so these aren't necessarily written directly to us. And so instead of having lessons for bond servants, I want to talk about some lessons that we can learn from bond servants, from their example. And what do I mean by that? A lot of people, when they read these passages, they say, well, slavery was different back then, so maybe these are things that we can learn in our work relationships. And it's like being an employee or having an employee-employer relationship of some kind. And while there might be principles that are true, I think there's other things we can learn as well. You see, slavery was different on the island of Crete. It was different in Bible times. It wasn't quite like it has been in our nation's history, necessarily. But slaves still faced abuse. They still faced mistreatment from their masters. They were still property that was traded and sold. And we don't have that in our nation today. We know that we've abolished slavery, and that's a good thing. The Bible doesn't argue for slavery. And so the question is, what is Titus going to tell the slaves? Because a lot of them in that time were flocking to Christianity because it was the only thing in their lives that were telling them that they had equal value. Paul says in Galatians, there's not Jew or Greek, there's not slave or free, but we are equal in Christ. And so as you can imagine, being a slave, it would be rather enticing to become a Christian because someone is telling you that you are on equal ground with everyone else. Someone is telling you that you are free. But you see what this led to for many slaves, it led to men who were trying to abandon their masters, who were saying, because I'm free in Christ, I'm going to run away from my master. That's where we get the book of Philemon, Onesimus, running from his master. It led to slaves rebelling. It led to arguing. It led to all sorts of chaos. And so what Paul does is he writes these last two verses, two bondservants, two slaves. And the New Testament is not written in order to critique the social order or how the government is set up, but rather it accepts what it is. It accepts that there is slavery. It's not trying to say it's right or it's wrong. But it says, slaves, this is how you should live in light of your 
circumstances. And so these are lessons we can learn from bondservants or slaves. First of all, be submissive. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. He's saying, slaves, even though you're free in Christ, even though you know that you're equal with them, continue to submit. Continue to be faithful to your master. And I'm sure many of them would say, but I'm free. I'm equal with them. And that's true. But Paul isn't as concerned with their rights as he is their godliness. And he's saying, be submissive to your masters. He's not condoning slavery in any way. But he's saying, under this system of governments, be a faithful example of submission to the person you work for. And so while slavery is wrong and while these people had rights, we know that they're free in Christ, they would go and they would submit to their masters. You know, we have so many people in our world today that talk about their rights and what is owed to them and what they deserve. And you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that we deserve punishment and death because of our sins. The Bible tells us that because of our sin, we should be separated from God forever. And so now what Paul is saying, because we're in Christ, we should submit. We should be an example. Again, none of us are slaves. This doesn't have a one-for-one correlation necessarily. But there's a lesson we can learn from this. That if a slave in Bible times could submit to their master, even though it wasn't quite what they thought it was going to be, even though they knew they were equal in Christ, then friends, who can we show submission to? Who can we respect as authority? Who can we yield ourselves to? Be submissive. Learn from these bondservants. Be submissive in your life. Secondly, be agreeable. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing is actually an adjective that describes the rest of what he's going to say. So they should be well-pleasing by not being argumentative. The temptation for some of these slaves would be to submit, but to do so begrudgingly. To obey their masters, but to argue about them. It can be easy to argue against authority sometimes. It can be easy to push everything, pin everything back on the leader. You know, the leader is the one who gives the orders, who tells everybody what they should do. It can be easy to sometimes question them, argue with them, gossip about them. This would be something the slaves would be tempted to do. Sometimes they could be argumentative. Sometimes they could be rude. And Paul tells them that this attitude cannot slide. They should be well-pleasing. They should be agreeable. They should obey what their master says and do so with a good attitude. I was thinking the other day about just food service workers in general and how sometimes it can be hard to find some who have a good attitude, who like their job, who enjoy what they are doing. And I can understand as a teenager working my first entry-level job, it can be hard when you're not making 
a lot of money to have a good attitude. But don't you love it when you find that one worker at McDonald's or at another food place who just really has a great attitude and great work ethic, and they really seem to enjoy what they're doing? Don't you just want to tip that person or tell them that they're going to do a good job? You see them going places. Paul's saying, bond servants, be agreeable. Be well-pleasing to others. Don't be argumentative. Don't question your master, but agree with them. Be agreeable. And then lastly, be honest. He says not pilfering. Pilfering is the idea that you're taking money from someone or taking a little bit off the top. See, a lot of slaves were in charge of their master's finances. And so it was a very common practice in that day for slaves to take a little bit of the money for themselves without anyone else knowing. But he's saying, don't pilfer, don't make this your practice, but rather show all good faith. Be known for being honest. Be known for doing the right thing. Don't take anything back. These are great encouragements for us as well. If slaves can practice these things, if people who are in bondage can do these things, and believers, we can do these things as well. In our lives, we can learn from these men and women who submitted themselves to their masters, being well pleasing and honest. Look at what he says in verse 10. What's the result of this? A slave who would do this. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That word adorn has the idea of being beautiful. Or being an ornament, maybe. It has the idea that slaves, when you do this, when you show submission, even under these circumstances, even under these conditions, you become a beautiful depiction of the gospel. You become a beautiful example of the gospel to others around you. You adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. You make Christianity, you make doctrine something that others are attracted to in their lives. Friends, I don't know what circumstances you are under. I don't know what rights you have that you think may have been violated. But God knows and he calls us to these things anyways. I know that life can be hard. Sometimes things aren't fair. Sometimes we're not always treated like we should be. But when you can submit to authority, when you can be agreeable, when you can be honest, even during those intense circumstances, you can become a beautiful picture of the gospel to other people. You see, our churches need more people who are not as concerned with their rights and who are concerned with the gospel and making sure it is known to other people. Our country needs more people who are concerned more with what the Bible says about them and how they should live rather than what rights they think may or may not have been violated by others. There are millions of Christians around the world who do not have as much as we do, who do not live in as nice of houses, who do not have access to the same things and luxuries that we do, but who faithfully and gladly serve God each and every day in whatever circumstance they're in because they believe 
the gospel. And because of that, whatever circumstance we are in as believers, no matter what we think has been done to us that is not right, we can gladly serve God by being submissive, by being agreeable, by being honest and learning from these men and women who did this a couple thousand years ago. So as we conclude, as we think about this text, I've got questions for each of us to think about. First of all, younger women, do you love and serve in the context God has given you? Do you love your families? Do you live in sound doctrine? No matter where God has you in life, do you love and serve him all the same? Younger men, are we practicing self-control? Are we being self-controlled in all areas of our life? Older men, are you teaching the younger men sound doctrine? Are you teaching them how they should live? Older women, are you mentoring the younger women? Are you showing them how to have good families, how to love their husbands and children? And then to all of us, learning from the bond servants, are we submitting to authority well? Are we being a good example of submission, even during times of trial? This is how we have a well-ordered and healthy local church. This is how we make the doctrine of God something that is not something that is not ugly, but something that is beautiful. It doesn't mean everyone's going to like us. It doesn't mean everyone is going to respond well to us. And Matthew, Christ talks about how the gospel will divide families. It will divide friends from each other. But this, this lifestyle that Paul prescribes for us in Titus 2 is the model. It is the way forward for our church and having believers who act in the way that God wants us to act. So if you're living this way, if you're doing these things, if you're striving, if you're working at it, then I thank you. Because you're helping our church. You are a blessing to God's church. My encouragement for all of us is to do these things for the glory of God.